presented by Prescouter, where we discuss big ideas in the world of life science. I'm Jeremy Schmerer, and today, Dr. Michael Boat returns to the podcast to discuss ChatGPT. ChatGPT has been super buzzy these last few months, and when I asked ChatGPT how we should structure the podcast, it said, a podcast about ChatGPT could cover a wide range of topics related to natural language processing and artificial intelligence, as well as explore the capabilities of limitation capabilities and limitations of language models like ChatGPT. So I think we will do just that, except with a bit of a human touch. So Michael, ChatGPT generates quick answers to queries, but also has applications that some of our life science clients might find interesting or be thinking about? What comes to mind for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thanks for having me. And uh, let me just preface by promising that my answers haven't been generated by ChatGPT, which is, I think, something that nowadays, yeah, we're, we're not always certain which which is which. So um, yeah, so I, th I think you're right, and I think I think there's um, there's a split that we can make maybe in the conversation as we as we go through this that is angered around you know Chat GPT, which has really generated a lot of the buzz that people are talking about, and some of the underlying models that are used to do these kinds of things, uh, which as of yet, and there's some plans to change that. They really revolve around text, text identification, synthesis, writing, translation. So all kinds of basic operations that normally uh, would take a, a person or at least someone to to help out with some of these things. And I think that's a, a pretty exciting development uh, as such. Um, one small note, and, and maybe we, we get there at a later stage as well, is that there's a newer model for ChatGPT that is coming out, which is GPT-4, which also does basic recognition of images and can extract data, for instance, from graphs. And I think that, you know, is an example of, of things that, of course, within life sciences, but also across other sciences can be incredibly useful. So it can read graphs and it can extract information and say, well, this is in that graph. And that sort of sets the stage for, you know, pulling information from multiple graphs or putting, pulling information from graphs pa within patient data, papers. patient data, maybe uh, diagnostics. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Could it be used to look at the way... I don't know, maybe somebody's heart rate is charting or their vitals are charting, or is that taking this already too far? I'd say for the, if we talk about chat GPT itself, I, I think, you know, it, it is a, it is a model that does something that's pretty broad with text and also potentially with images that can be used widely. I see it more as a a service or a model that can do preliminary research into a topic or very practical transactional things, like, as I said, translation of text. Um, I'd say that for, for medical related things, there's all kinds of other algorithms that people have been working on for years that really are in that realm of, of the business. Uh, one example is actually there's there's a recent um, medical AI uh, from Google that's, that's uh, called MedPalm that can give advice as if it were a clinician. And so it's been developed to, you know, give some kind of a chatbot response to all kinds of features that patients present with and be doing a pretty good job. So, and that I think is the, the thing to separate here is that the underlying technology for ChatGPT, which is what we call natural language processing, that's really the, the interesting thing. And that's really the exciting part that 
folks within healthcare and life sciences and and biotechs from startups to to established companies uh, can can use and probably will use quite widely. I think I think that's an interesting um, maybe not divergence, but but it's a good place to kind of take this uh, episode into more of the the NLP conversation. But before we get into that. I want to go back to what you mentioned about what Google is building and just more broadly, um, you know, patients being able to ask questions. Um, this thing can quickly research treatment plans and advice. To what extent, if any, do you think something like that would be reliable and how accurate could it be for someone who expresses concern over a certain condition and is looking for advice? Yeah. That's a great question. I think the particularly tricky thing about that is that there may be sort of a, a, an emergent issue where an, if an AI makes a mistake, it can have high cost and high consequences, right? right? So, But I would say for more, let's say you have a, a sort of a rash on your hands and, and it's something uh, quite, quite innocent. Um, these kinds of things, they can offload a lot of the work from medical doctors that are seeing patients with maybe more critical issues. They can distribute their time a bit more differently. I wouldn't say that for these more emergent cases or for all of these uh, clinical presentations that this would be a, a blanket program because I think we're not there yet in terms of the, uh, um, the accuracy or reliability, whatever you may call it. So it sounds like if we were to create um, some sort of a tactical bucket for these physicians and doctors who are very busy and they could take one look at something and make a quick diagnosis. I, I don't know the extent of those cases, but it sounds like chat GPT or something like it uh, can produce a result that allows the physician or doctor to spend more time on the critical cases that need to have extra attention. Is that kind of what you know, uh, I, actually, the Google thing that you mentioned, is that what it's intended to do? I guess so. And one one particularly funny thing is that because it's a language model, is that that's, that algorithm was actually found to make more safe claims and safe advice than actual clinicians. And the oh, reason boy. is that it has some kind of a cushioning of things that it, it is reporting back. Um, so there's, there's a, an interesting aspect there. The way I see that being used is... Um, initially is it gives some kind of an advice to clinicians that they still will have to vet, you know, so because I think that I think the major, the major lack that we have, and this is the thing with chat GPT that has made people go crazy is that we don't know when it's producing nonsense or not. And so it can come up with all kinds of references that you click and it doesn't exist. Right. And sometimes right. you don't know. With some of these more specific applications, like clinical diagnoses, it is much easier to validate for that specific use, the AI and the value of it. And so I think that is a crucial component for these types of algorithms to be used more widely. For ChatGPT, it is incredibly difficult to do that. And things have gone off the rails and people have been prompting ChatGPT to say things that you know, maybe are not truthful or maybe are factually wrong or are misleading. And when you're talking about somebody's health, the stakes are certainly just a lot higher and determining who's right, who's the better doctor. Um, was it, is it a bot or is it the actual doctor? I, I think you're right. It's probably um, a walk, you know, before you run type of model, right? So maybe 
the physician can check what is said and see how actionable that is and how clinically viable it might be. But then over time, that can also be aiding in the development and the sophistication of these models. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think we, we we basically did a an experiment as a as a world where we released an AI, I wouldn't say monster, but a big entity that we don't really know very well. And all kinds of people started throwing prompts at it. And you can see that there's all kinds of potential for misinformation or maybe misuse or maybe folks thinking that it could help them diagnose things or treat, right? So I feel like we kind of opened Pandora's box without any guide rails from regulatory agencies. Like, who's going to regulate this? It is an online tool. Accountability, right? insurance. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty academically a very interesting experiment. Practically, I, you know, it, there has to be some kind of a verification, validation around these things, especially if we start using it for, you know, medical or other kinds of applications. So, and you kind of alluded to this being part of a larger AI platform or NLP platform with different capabilities. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, of course. So, so ChatGPT is sort of, I guess, um, one of my professors always said in, in science, it's not about the first person who finds or identifies something, but the first who convinces the world. And I think that is very true with ChatGPT is that everyone now thinks, wow, this new technology, it's amazing. They're the first to come up with this, but it's not, right? There's, uh, again, Google has worked quite a lot on, on doing uh, natural language processing, so text-based analysis. They initially came up with a model called BERT, B-E-R-T, um, and GPT is sort of based on some of those learnings, a different model that people have built uh, at, at OpenAI. Um, but natural language processing itself as a as a tool is used widespread in all kinds of applications for business intelligence, for academic learnings within pharma and biotech, reading through patient data or electronic medical records, right? Making sense of, of certain texts, um, clinical trial uh, development or clinical trial recruitment are areas where people are thinking about using NLP. And the big difference there is that the, while the underlying technology is the same, it is not a, a general chatbot that you can ask anything. It is a much more directed, uh, controlled um, program that does, for instance, uh, decrease the time spent on clinical trial recruitment or live meta-analyses on a new drug that you're trying to investigate, right? Hey, I'm, I'm looking into this disease area. What has been published? Can I read through it within a matter of minutes, all the literature published on it? And can it extract for me relevant elements of data that I then want to see to assess whether this is something I, I want to develop a drug in, right? So those are the kinds of applications where NLP is actually already for quite a few years being used. Right. It sounds like it's it's very widely used already. And this is just a very buzzy, maybe more consumer friendly, you know, Every every man can use this and and try to type in their their funny questions or their very useful potential applications. It sounds like the really advanced, very innovative pharma, biotech, and med device companies are probably already thinking about these applications. And you highlighted a few others that they might uh, be able to use this for. Can you think of 
other innovations that this type of increased autom- automation and increased efficiency can this give rise to? Yeah, I, th- I think the major interesting piece, and that's why I mentioned that newer version that can read images, I feel text-based approaches, everyone has swaths of text, large pharma companies, they, they probably have more than, than you know a person could read in their lifetime. And some of it is not electronic. Some of it may be written down in notes. And so you can probably feel where I'm going is it would be incredibly useful to tap into images of those that can then be extracted or read or drawings of graphs or whatnot and sort of bundle that into big data lakes, as they call them. So big, (laughs) um, um, yeah, sort of structured pieces of text that can then be assessed with, with AI. The other thing is, and especially with images and translation capabilities, there are so many transcripts and other kinds of books and documents. Uh, if I think about, you know, old medicine uh, studies in Japan in the in the in first centuries of, of our existence, could potentially now be accessed and cataloged and potentially translated. So there's this whole interesting approach where we can basically start collecting a lot of the unstructured or wrong formats text or non-digitalized formats of text and add that into databases or bulks of data that we have. And I think that is a pretty interesting development. That That is an interesting development. But the funny thing that comes to mind for me is that there is still a human element needed in order to feed the machine, right? So somebody, if these are written down in notes somewhere, Somebody presumably still has to do the manual scanning, and perhaps you could create a an automated system for that. But getting everything in there for the system to work with is still a, a human task, which is ironic because the human task in this case becomes the very mundane tactical task, and the machine task is very sophisticated. What are your thoughts on that as we look to wrap up? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true, right? And I guess the other human task is that we become like a secretary of um, uh, <laughs> of of, the, of ChatGPT, which is you know we we sort of prompted to something, but then we want to try and find out what. Well, you know, can I find the references that go with this information that I just obtained, right? So there's this interesting interplay between a, a big. Uh, hazy AI that produces all kinds of things that we don't really know how to interpret or how to uh, build into our daily lives or or even our science practices. So interesting. Yeah, the, the robot human dynamic continues to evolve. Um, all right, well, we're going to wrap things here because I'm pretty sure ChatGPT would have told me that 15 minutes or less is the optimal short form podcast length. So if you found this conversation particularly thought-provoking, or have further questions, we encourage you to reach out to us. Our information is in the show notes as always. And if you're not subscribing already, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And thanks for tuning in. 